Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is all about jewellery. First, we meet the founder who's passionate about creating quality, fashion-forward pieces that won't break the bank. The slow burn is, is so much more worth it because then you know how to ride the highs and the lows and you know how to persevere when you need to. Then we get some shopping tips from a connoisseur of fine jewellery who's also a Monocle insider who has an unrivaled eye for finding the right piece for the right occasion. It's nice to have something special for a special occasion, but actually a lot of times pieces like that just stay in people's drawers and ultimately wearability is really important. Mm. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Marisa Horden is the founder and creative director of Missima, a demi-fine jewellery brand she started quite literally from her kitchen table. Horden didn't always know she wanted to work with jewellery, but since childhood she had a love of crystals and gemstones and a fascination with the creative processes involved in crafting fine jewellery. Against that backdrop, Horden grew frustrated in her day-to-day corporate career, feeling ever more disconnected from her work. Seeking a more multifaceted role, she decided to quit her job and start Missima to follow that enduring passion for the creative process of jewellery design and production. Fast forward a decade and change, and Missima has a loyal base of customers and ships to more than 200 countries around the world. Our Laura Kramer caught up with Horden. Marisa began by telling Laura about the start of the journey. I was making jewellery on the side around the kitchen table with my mum. And that was just something we did together. My mum and I are super, super close, and my sister. And we would bead things around the kitchen table all the time, and it was a hobby. And I'd been doing it after university while I was looking for a job, and then I carried on doing it while I had the job. And it sort of grew and grew, and basically I was we were beading all these pieces, and then they had, like, vintage centrepieces that we'd find in markets, and they were actually vintage beaded belts and then necklaces and earrings, and, and I would take them around to shop and sell them literally like sort of in a roll here are my wares like open up the roll and then I would take them to I remember even like editors desk visits I'd write to them and just it's just persevering take it along and and it sort of built up this loyal following but the thing is it wasn't scalable they were one-off pieces but they were selling out they were getting in sort of the magazines and actually it was kind of growing to beyond what we could maintain and then eventually I sort of started then getting all these different what I would call the the students at all the different jewellery and art schools where they would be beading for me on the side to earn money. So I would literally be taking around bags full of beads and wire and with all the instructions handwritten, of course. And I'd be like sort of meeting them in my car, driving around with all these like, basically like a drug dealer, but with all my crystals. There's the bead lady. <laughs> yeah. And even now when I go to like, you know, I have these gemstone dealers and I always say it's like they're my they're my crystal dealers <laughs> <laughs> so that was 15 years ago yeah, right over 15 years ago if I'm being completely honest because <laughs> that was when I was still working I then 15 years ago decided to give it a go and quit the job try and make it work really see if I can and and I think it's just follow that dream to do something that makes you that is more creative and really that you can love and get your sort of hands dirty with and really get stuck in and and create something I love that because as a creative person, I know that suffocating feeling. And it's actually kind of similar to what happens at Monocle here, too. We have people who come from much bigger media organizations. Mm. And like you said, you're so pigeonholed in Mm. one area. But then you come here and you get to, because it is a smaller team. I love that. And it, I think it helps people. Mm. I'm sure you you hear this all the time, also kind of hone in on what they actually want to focus on down the line. Exactly. And it's surprising how, and we always try and give people that, 
chance as well to experience different things. And we always say, go and chat to everyone, go and learn about the different departments. And then we have each department presenting as well regularly, saying this is what we actually do. And people are always surprised what goes in behind it. It doesn't matter whether that is the production team, I'm presenting how a piece is made from start to finish, or the e-com team, how to launch a product, the merchandising team. And I mean, I'm always learning, but the team are also always learning and sort of seeing which area they want to go go into. But there's a lot of cross-collaboration as a result and real sort of friendships are forged between the teams. And as a result, I do think our brand has, well, our team and the company culture has a really special, a special bond. That's one of the things I'm proudest of. Oh, that's really nice. You can tell, too, that it really <laughs> lights you up talking about it. Now, was there a moment that changed the game? For the brand. Yes. I think there's no one moment. I would say there was a coming together of everything. And the interesting thing is it took about seven years to get to that point. And I think that's what people are always surprised by. Even the other day I was with someone, they were like, oh, yeah, no, I remember when I first heard about you. I've been following you from the beginning. And they were like, oh, since, you know, 2015. I was like, no, that wasn't the beginning. (laughs) There were seven years of hard graft and, and really thinking, oh, my God, this is going nowhere. What am I doing? What am I doing with my life? My, I, how am I ever going to make this work? And, oh, I chose the wrong thing and, you know, I really messed up here. It was all about perseverance. But what was the moment that turned it around? I think, you know, you work really hard on design was never the problem. You work really hard on getting the quality right, then on getting the price point right, and then finding out, right, who is your customer and how are you going to talk to them? And I think for us, we were very early to online. We were then very early to social. And we we built up this very, these authentic relationships, which we're still very much all about. We then sort of built up this word of mouth. It, it was a slow, slow, you know, slow burn, I can tell you. Word of mouth sort of following. And then it became press following that, you know, your loyal customer follower, then your VIP and sort of celebrity following, the coming together of all those things. But it it, it has to be based on the right design, the right quality and the right price point. But once you, I think, tie that up with all the other elements to make this really whole 360 brand offering. And I think we offered something different at the time that didn't really exist. And it was basically saying you can buy jewelry for yourself. It can still be great quality. You know, you can have fashion forward, really cool jewelry, but at affordable price points, but still lasting quality pieces that you wear every single day. And now there are, to be honest, hundreds of brands that do that and now even thousands. But at that time, it was a niche category and there was only fashion and fine. There wasn't what what is now called demi-fine. So we really were sort of carving out this pathway for this new category to come in. And it took about seven years, yeah, to get people to where we were. But, you know, the slow burn is, is so much more worth it because then you know how to ride the highs and the lows and you know how to persevere when you need to that organic, holistic kind of approach Mm, mm. to it all. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's rooted in everything that we do. And I think people can see that in our partnerships, in our collaborations, in our relationships. They can see that they're very authentic. And I think that really does... You can tell when a brand is paying for something and you can tell when people love the brand either because of the product or what they stand for, what they're saying, what they're doing, how they do it. And I think that makes the difference. I'm glad you brought up collaborations because I did want to ask how you approach them now and how do you make sure it aligns with the brand's values, the aesthetics Mm. and everything you want Mm. going forward now that you're not building it up, but instead, I guess, creating the legacy of the brand. There has to be a meeting of minds with anyone that you work with. And then you have to make sure that 
okay, are we working towards the same things here? What do we want out of it? But what do we also both stand for separately? And do those two things coming together align? So for example, with um, one of our recent collaborations with Harris Reed, who is one of my great friends now, we met and we were just like, Brr! and you could just tell there was an immediate chemistry. But at the same time, what I thought was so important about that collaboration for me was that it's not just beautiful, shiny jewellery. It's jewellery that actually stands for something. And it's jewellery that is all about openness, all about acceptance, all about being who you want to be. And I just loved the fact that this was a partnership that was not just going to create something beautiful, and obviously with his aesthetic and his amazing talent, but also what it stood for. And I think that gave it so much extra importance for me, for the team. I love what it stands for. And how does the creative process then work as you're designing these pieces? And whether it's a a collaboration Mm. or indeed just for the brand itself, take me through the process of it. Well, I love talking about the process because, you know, we're all about the craftsmanship. And nowadays there are so many brands that, you know, it's fast fashion and it's bought in. And and so we love to talk about, no, 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 this is a work of love. I mean, not only does it take about a year to get from start to finish in terms of from first sketch to actual launch, but also we start with sketches and the inspiration could come from anywhere. It could come from vintage jewelry. It could come from lighting, like modern lighting, ceramics, anywhere. Anything that, you know, we've gone and seen. I go to vintage markets in Paris. I, I look at amazing sculptors. And then we sketch And then we do our first sort of technical drawing. I mean, there's quite a few phases for that. We sort of, you know, hone it into what do we want this like to look like as a a collection? What does it mean? What are we talking to? But then we do a technical specification. Then we do a CAD, which is like a 3D CAD. And you can sort of, you know, obviously see all sides, etc. And then we print it. We have a 3D printer and we print it to really see that volume and that how will it feel when it's on? How you know thick is it? Because otherwise we're actually taking a step out of the process so that we're not having to fly samples in when we don't need to. And that's also really great. And part of, I mean, it's a one small step in our in our sustainability initiatives. But then after the 3D print, we then obviously go to the silver model making. That is all done in our factories in India and Thailand. And they're all responsible jewellery council audited. And then from the silver model, then there will be the filing, there'll be the setting if there's gemstones or CZs or diamonds, depending what it is. If there's enamel, that's all hand painted. But even with that, the filing and the polishing might go through several rounds or the silver model might go through different iterations. It's a real, it's a real process of absolute love. And, and the craftsmen who are you know, working on this, they have been, it's been a generational love of making jewellery. They've been in it for generations. And the stone cutters as well. I mean, there's nothing better than seeing the stones being cut from the rough. And then after that, pre-plating, the plating, the post-plating, the, the drying, then it goes through the QC. And in fact, there's quality control in about three or four different stages. It's a very rigorous process. So yeah, jewellery is an ancient form of craftsmanship. And there are very few, I suppose, you know, industries that have that history from whether it's the Roman jewellery to the Egyptian jewellery, etc. And are still today done with all by hand. There are so many processes involved mm. that you just spoke about. Yeah, Obviously. sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's fascinating. And as I'm thinking, wow, how hands-on are you mm. in those? Because you obviously also have to think about the overall bigger yeah. aims of the brand. I've always been incredibly hands-on. I mean, I am a little bit of a control freak. But, you know, at the same time, I also have an amazing team now that I've built up 
over years and you have to learn how to delegate and you build up a team who understands your aesthetic and it does it takes a while with any new team member to come in and understand you know the Missima aesthetic and the same with any new supplier to understand the Missima finish I went and found every single factory at the beginning and most of them we still work with because it is about partnerships they're not suppliers they are partners and we have really 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 close working relationships and we do go out regularly whether it's me or one of my team to go and visit with them or they visit with us we had two in actually last week and then I'm going to Bangkok and Jan some of my team will be going to Jaipur but at the beginning yeah I went round and went to trade shows to find the gemstone suppliers and then from there once I found right who can actually try and manufacture these designs for us I then went directly to the factories to to visit them and see how they were made and, and everything that they were doing because it's really important that they're all audited and the Responsible Jewellery Council is part of that process. The ones that weren't, we helped them then get audited and it makes sure that it's not just for health and safety but it's for social welfare, pay, if there's any overtime pay, all of those different elements that are so important and then also looks at some of the sustainability practices from you know what areas of... Are they doing any renewable energy initiatives? What what percentage of their water usage is recycled? And it's a work in progress for all of us. I think in general, this whole, the S word that mm. gets brought up now regularly, mm. everybody is trying to figure out their way. But how do you approach yeah. responsible, ethical, yeah. sustainability practices? So so we always say it's we're not the most sustainable. We will be the most responsible. And our job is to be the most responsible that we can be and to understand what we're doing right, what we could do better, and then what the future plan is. Because, you know, no one can be perfectly sustainable. And there are areas in the, for the industry, which I'll go into in a sec, that aren't quite there yet. So we have to work on those, but work on them together, you know, as a whole. You can't do it all alone. So, you know, you start off and it's a step-by-step process. But I think the most important thing for us is to be completely transparent. And I remember at one point when we were trying to get 100% certified recycled metals being used in all of our factories. Now, first of all, there's a difference between certified and just saying recycled metals. So where I say about transparency, what I mean is that I'm very passionate about going through that whole chain of custody whereby you look at every single thing from the source. And so we make sure that, for example, all of our metals are coming from one source in the US. So we know that they're all coming from the same source. There's nothing coming from the open market. There's nothing coming from anywhere where we don't know exactly the percentages. But at one point, two of our factories in Jaipur were outside of the import-export zone. So two were inside and two were outside. And we found it harder to import those certified recycled metals to that external zone because of the different you know government legislation duty tax so we had to explain to our customers why and we could have said we're 100% recycled metals but it wouldn't have been certified because they were using so I think that's where we try and be really really transparent probably overly transparent but I think it's better to be that so we said look we're not quite there yet and this is why but we're working on it and then basically a year later we managed to overcome it and we managed to solve it but it did take a year, and then we were so proud. And I don't think anyone realised how hard that was. So, yeah, that's been a, you know, first we started with the silver, then we got the gold, and then we did the brass last year. So each year, you know, we're setting ourselves new challenges. We are now looking at different mines where we can make sure that it is all responsibly mined. But that's really hard. The industry's not there yet, so not all the gemstones are for any I don't think for any brand. So that's something we need to all work on together. And the same with pearls, trying to find pearls where it's sustainably sourced. So, you know, we're starting to go out and try and find those pearl farms that we can really 
really say it's been certified. But again, so the industry on gemstones and pearls is not quite there. We're very proud of what we've done in terms of all of our metals, all of our packaging. And, and the same with, you know, when you offset your carbon. That is only step one. It's not good enough. It's still better than doing nothing. So we first started off by offsetting our deliveries and returns. And we worked with this tech platform called Vayu, and we were, one of the first, well, we were the first jewellery brand to work with them. And it meant that it was calculated in real time because it was taking our real-time online data. Then we moved on to our packaging. Then we moved on to our operations. And then the next step will be, and we're not there yet, will be the product life cycle. But, you know, again, that's very complicated. And we don't have a dedicated sustainability team. What we do is we have a team member in every department, so it becomes a whole focus for the entire business. Every department has its own responsibilities, and then we come together to meet and to update on each different action point. Well, you know, actually, we interviewed the uh, founder of Vayu. Oh, did you? She came here. She was lovely. She's amazing, yeah. She and is so great. <laughs> they've been such a great partner for us because I think they've helped educate us as well. And I think every business, when they start that journey, you don't know what you don't know. So what they did is they helped map it out for us in very simple terms and, and also set those goals that were, you know, achievable steps because, again, it can be so overwhelming. So like I said, you know, we did step one, now we've done step two, and now we will be looking at step three with them in the future. And then they helped us choose, you know, um, well, actually, it's called Choose. They helped us choose Choose, which is this Norwegian project that helps us we choose the biodiversity projects we then want to give back to. So whether it's Peruvian rainforests or Cambodian forests or in India, we also are doing biodiversity projects. And that's where you we choose where to then be contributing when we talk about what we've been offsetting. What's next then? What can we look forward to? Right now, our big focus is on opening our first store. And we're really, really excited. As a London brand, we've never had our own store. We did a pop-up last year, which was really exciting. It was a kind of testing the waters and it was it was absolutely brilliant, the response. And so it's given us the confidence to really put our stick in the ground. And, and yes, we're opening a store in Covent Garden. You know, we're just evolving different areas of, of the business from the fine jewellery. That's exciting. So I love developing that. We're introducing piercing. So that'll be so exciting. But they're like really cool piercings. You know, everything we do, we like to have a little bit of character and a bit of a tongue-in-cheek, you know, attitude. Because things should be, your jewellery should be playful and fun. It's your armour. It's there to give you confidence. It's there to kind of say you've got this. There are, you know, a few other markets that are also growing for us that, you know, are really exciting to explore and to understand the different cultural nuances So that. I love learning. And then obviously just evolving our product offering, you know, new techniques, new, you know, new exciting things. We always like to challenge ourselves and change things up. We're not sort of a brand and, and I'm suddenly not someone who stands still. So there's got to always be, be a new challenge. That was Marisa Horden. You can learn more about the brand she's built by heading to misma.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. This is The Entrepreneurs, where we continue now with our sparkling jewellery special. I'm exceptionally pleased to say I'm now joined by a monocle colleague. It's Brenda Tui. Hello, Brenda. Uh, Brenda's the co-founder of Knightsbridge Rocks, a hand-picked collection of fine jewellery. And she's here to tell us more about that and to give us a few shopping tips ahead of the festive season. Brenda, welcome. Let's begin with the story. Tell us about the start of your journey. My neighbour and very good friend Katie Kelly and I were great lovers of jewellery. And about 13 years ago, we came up with this brilliant idea that as we loved jewellery so much, we'd start buying it and then maybe selling it. 
So that's how we started. So, you know, we buy things, we wear them a little bit, and then hopefully we sell them. And, and that strikes me as really interesting, Brenda, because I know you're being sort of playful about that. Mm. But the point is, like so many things, if we talk about some of these other categories, like buying art or whatever, yeah. it has to be a passion play, correct? I agree. One can obviously make a successful business out of it, but it's got to be a passion first and foremost. It is an absolute passion, and often Katie has to remind me that it is also <laughs> a business. <laughs> That I can't just have everything. And tell me where that, where did that love, that fascination begin? Is that something you've had your whole, your whole life? And is it like old classic pieces, contemporary pieces, what, or just a bit of everything? Well, we do have a bit of everything, but we sort of start buying things really from about the mid fifties, nineteen fifties onwards. And right now. Pieces from the 60s and 70s are very, very popular too. Big yellow gold chunky pieces, you know, <laughs> that you see coming a mile off. They're um, fantastic. And Brenda, how, how do you build up your, your knowledge base? Or is it all gut instincts? Obviously, you, you're talking about the trends in the marketplace, so you must have a weather eye. I know you have lots of contacts in that world as well. How do you ensure that you're sufficiently on top of those trends and, and dynamics? I mean, I'm not so sure how much we stick to the trends. I think we really stick to what we like. And so Katie's aesthetic could be completely different than mine. And often we're surprised, you know. Also, we have, you know, different price ranges. We have 500 and under. We have 5,000 and over. It depends on what you're doing. We've recently started to use recycled gold and we've repurposed gemstones that we have pulled out of other items of jewelry, rings and things, and created a couple of new ranges too. So we've got the repurposed gemstones and we've popped them into some recycled gold and then got an, an Italian enameler to um, create something. They, they look like little bits of candy, you know, and pink enamel or bright yellow or turquoise. So we're becoming more confident now. We're not just buying pieces. We're also creating pieces. Very exciting journey. And you obviously advise clients. I'm sure people come to you with quite specific requests. When people ask those, probably, I imagine, slightly annoying questions, what should I look for? Does this matter? We were actually talking just before about these old inherited pieces and people think they have a great value. Often they have a much greater value yeah. because of their origin story. Yes. But are there easier things for lay listeners to look out for when it comes to particular signposts of, of quality or craft or things that you think have a, a wider appeal? What kinds of things should people be looking for, Brenda? Ultimately, they should be, I think, looking for something that they really love. And I would say that wearability is really important. Mm. I'm interested in pieces that I can wear pretty much every day. I mean, it's nice to have something special for a special occasion, but actually... A lot of times, pieces like that just stay in people's drawers and aren't worn. And ultimately, I think only 10% of all jewelry that is purchased or given or inherited ever goes back into the secondary market. So there's a lot of jewelry probably hidden in people's drawers. So I would say, first of all, buy something that you like, something that you can wear every day. And then if it's, especially if it's something you're going to invest a lot of money in, I mean, a pair of diamond ear studs, they're timeless, they're classic, you can wear them to the supermarket, you can wear them out to dinner, you can wear them all day, you can probably sleep in them, they're comfortable. I sometimes do, Brenda, <laughs> just those. I joke, I joke, of course. Let's talk a little bit about not just the the special occasion piece, but the singular occasion piece. It's such a focus in fine jewellery, of course, looking at engagement rings, that kind yes. of thing. Should people 
retain the same criteria or do you have to acknowledge that it's a bit of a different set of parameters you're operating with? I, I think you have to maintain the same criteria. I do. You know, this is a ring you're going to wear every single day. I think it's important that it's not too high. I mean, the stone can be as large as you like. <laughs> You know, or as little. I mean, you can just go for a band speckled with diamonds, but I'd be more in the market for something at least two carats. Take uh, note, listeners. <laughs> These are Brenda's very specific requirements. But it's if you buy something from the secondary market, obviously you're not paying for the labor, for the manufacturer. You're probably not paying for the marketing either, so you're probably going to get a better deal on it. You have to look at the diamond, the quality of diamond. You have to look at your budget. You know, there's a lot, lot of things to take into account. I would suggest that maybe, that maybe for all kinds of reasons, including sustainability, that you look at the secondary market. And, and but, maybe in particular Knightsbridge Rock. Well, I was going to say, and ask somebody who knows, because I think this is one of those interesting things. There are lots of people who say, look, I'm actually quite an enthusiast, but I still find it a bit a bit of a tricky place to, to, to navigate. Some of the big auction houses, I'm a bit intimidated by them. Who can you trust? You know, Brenda sounds very convincing, but who knows what she's getting up to. Do you think it's right that people approach, because there are big investments sometimes at play, that they approach with a degree of trepidation, but would you say it's not a market to be afraid of? Just get stuck in, get researching, find out more? I think that's a very, very good idea that you know that you arrive forearmed with some information and also that you have an idea of what you want it's better. I mean, there's so many images of rings everywhere. And I think when you're looking at an engagement ring, I wouldn't be concerned with trends. I would be thinking to keep it quite simple and strong because it's something, again, that you don't want to be fashionable. It's something you're going to wear every day, hopefully for the rest of your life. Hopefully. Yes. Um, I was jotting down some notes then, Brenda, <laughs> but nobody get any ideas, whoever you are listening. Quick shopper's guide. So, Listener out there, they love your approach, Brenda. If they know you, they'll love your style. And they'll say, look, I've got a bit of bunts to play with here. I'm going to come and chat to Brenda. Let's say in the under 5,000 bracket, what would you point us towards? One of your own signature pieces? Something else that you've got on the roster at the minute? Under five, first of all, what would you, what I would think, you advise me to I think me under 5,000. I think I would always head to a dealer who deals in jewellery from the secondary market because you're just going to get more for your money, whether it's under 5000 or under 500 Now, if you're looking for something that isn't going to have to last for a lifetime, there are lots of wonderful high street shops that you could look into where they might have gold-plated or gilt jewelry in fantastic designs that are for right now that can update your look. But I think if you're investing a lot of money you should really look for something that has a timeless and simplicity. What, what's next, Brenda? What are you most excited about? As you said, you've described some of those pieces. Are you going to continue with these sorts of innovations and experimentations? What does the short-term future look like? Well, I think the short-term future, I mean, it's Christmas, isn't it? That's what's coming. So we have a lot of wonderful pieces that we're going to be showing at the Monocle Fair in Zurich on the 2nd and 3rd of December. And also, we'll be popping up at the Monocle Christmas Market in London on the 9th and 10th of December. So do come along. We've got a 100 pieces to show you in varying styles and prices. I think that Christmas, white gold and white diamonds are always lovely, reminiscent of ice-covered trees. This and, is poetic, yeah, Brenda. Um, I can hear the sounds of jingle bells <laughs> carrying on a, on a chill winter breeze. Lovely stuff. And I can't 
promise you that one of my children won't try and pocket some of the more premium <laughs> items. This is what I happened, like, yes, it happened yes. last year. <laughs> so I did. hope the inventory's recovered <laughs> in the meantime. Brenda Tui from Knightsbridge Rocks, thank you very much for coming thank to Thank you us. so much, Tom. Thank you. You can learn more by heading to knightsbridgerocks.com or pop by the Monocle Christmas Markets in Zurich on the 2nd and 3rd of December and right here in London town the weekend after. All the details about that are on monocle.com. And that's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can also subscribe to Monocle magazine and read more about better businesses every month. You can also follow us and catch up with the extensive archive via your preferred podcast platform. Contact the team by writing to Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.